One of the gifts of the lectionary is that it, it puts texts into juxtaposition with one another and create strange harmonies and strange dissonances. And this week, the text from the epistle that you just heard and from the gospel that I just read fit oddly together. At the heart of the epistle reading is the promise that perfect love casts out fear. A promise that we've heard all of our lives, those of us who've been in church. We've heard this promise that if, if God's love is perfected in us, we have no fear. No fear of punishment. No fear of judgment. And yet, the gospel reading for the day is filled with threat as well as promise. Jesus says, those branches in me that do not bear fruit are cut off, they wither, they're cast into the fire and consumed. So how can it be that Jesus claims that God is one who cuts off, not only cuts back to prune, but cuts away and destroys, and that perfect love casts out fear? How can we have no fear if our God threatens us with judgment? How can we overcome the fear of God's own threats to us? How can we ask the same thing another way? How can we hear God's threats as promises? When God says, I will destroy you, how do I hear that as I will make you holy and good and wise? That's the only way, I think, that we can reconcile these, these two texts, how they can hold together. So on the one hand, we do serve a God who not only cuts back to prune, but cuts away to destroy, and yet even that is something we do not have to fear. Even that is something we do not have to fear for ourselves or for other people. Somehow all of that has to hold together. I think everything depends on how we live together. I think the point of these two texts is less about my relationship to God and more about my relationship to you. Now this, I think most of us have heard exactly the other way around. Most of us have thought of the, church, of the church and Christian gathering and worship as in service of our personal relationship to God. I think virtually all of us will have been trained to think that what matters most is my personal relationship to God in Christ, and my relationship to you helps my relationship to God in Christ, but insofar as it hinders me, I can break the relationship with you because I have a relationship with God in Christ, and that's what defines me. But I think the heart of this passage is that the truth is exactly the other way around. That's that there is no relationship to God in Christ that doesn't look like a relationship with you. Amen. That to be bound to him is inseparably, inseparably to be bound up with you, to be entangled with your life. So that if I'm cut off, I'm cut off not only from him but from you. So that if I abide in the vine, I am entangled in the branches. And there is no cutting away from him that isn't also a breaking away from you. There's no breaking away from you that is not also a being cut off from him. So if I abide in the vine, I remain entangled in the branches. Amen. Yeah. Come on. I remain caught up in your life and you remain caught up in mine. Yes. So that to be a Christian is not primarily to make a claim about a relationship with God. It's primarily to make a claim about a relationship with the people of God. When you say that you are in Christ, the first thing that you're saying is that you are tied up with, entangled with, bound up with the people who call Christ Lord. Yes, yes. And that is the shape your relationship with Christ takes. Again, I think we get this exactly backwards over and over and over again. Yes. But think about 1 John, 1 Corinthians 13 for a moment with me. This may be a little bit teachy, 
and not quite preachy, but you'll have to, you'll have to go with me. That's, that's what I've got. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Mark. I appreciate that. 1 Corinthians 13, I want you to hear, again, familiar passage, but I want you to hear it differently, perhaps, than you've heard it. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now notice all that is being listed here is a description of the life of someone who's filled up with the power of God. Right. Amen. It's, it's the, the saints and the prophets are the ones who have prophetic powers, who understand all mysteries and knowledge, who are filled with faith, who give their bodies as sacrifices. The saints and the prophets and the apostles, these are the figures who have this kind of life of God in them. And yet Paul says that means nothing if you don't live with one another lovingly. Yes. And then he describes the nature of love. And I want you to see how mundane, how pedestrian, the description he gives of love is in contrast to prophetic powers, faith that moves mountains, not having all knowledge of mysteries. Love is patient. Yes. Love suffers long. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. All of these things he's describing are not about my relationship to him. I don't need to be patient with God. I don't need to be kind with God. I have to be patient with you. You have to be patient with me. You have to be kind to me, and I have to be kind to you. Everything Paul lists here is about our mutual relationship in Christ. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, I know this is so counterintuitive for us, but the most important part of your life with God is your life with other believers and with those who do not believe. What defines your faithfulness is not your prophetic power. It's not walking in faith and victory. It's not going from glory to glory, but living day to day, face to face and shoulder to shoulder with people who are just like you and not resenting them for being just like you. What defines the Christian life as faithful is our ability to stomach each other long enough for God to perform his work in us. It's to stay close enough to each other that the vine's life can spread through the branches as they're entangled. The fruit we are called to bear is the fruit of life together. Yes. Not prophetic power, not mysterious insight, not faith that moves mountains, but brotherly and sisterly love across time through whatever difficulties come to face us. To be a faithful Christian is mostly about living in company with other Christians who are more or less faithful than you are. Now, that should be encouraging, but it may not be. <laughs> but let me take you back to the epistle now, to 1 John. Let me show you how all of this, I think, holds together for, for the Apostle John. He begins in verse 7 by, by calling us to love. Beloved, let us love one another. We are people who are defined by the love God has for us. 
Therefore, let us live with one another lovingly. Love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love, his brother and sister, does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we, you and I together, might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loves us so much, we also ought to love one another. Now I want you to see, in most of our preaching, the argument would be, because God loves us so much, we should love him. The emphasis would fall on our responding to God with love that matches his love for us. God has loved you endlessly, you should love him endlessly. God has devoted himself to you, you should devote yourself to him. But the Apostle John says, God has loved you so much, you should tolerate one another. God has loved you so much, you should stomach one another. God has loved you so much, you should refuse to break company with one another. If you know how much God loves you, you could never walk away from those people who are around you. And then he says this, and this is what I think we often miss. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, notice how striking that line is. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. No one has ever seen God unless we live with one another in such a way that God is revealed. This is what Jesus says in his high priestly prayer just before his death in the Gospel of John. He says, and this is how all people will know that you are mine. You will love one another. How do we make God known in the world? Not by our personal individual devotion to him. Not by our prophetic powers, not by our insight into mysteries, not by our faith that moves mountains. We make God known in the world by the way we live with one another. God is manifested in our ability to stay together. God is manifested in our ability over time, through whatever difficulties, to love one another. And when we do that, the text says, God's love is perfected in us. And it's that love that casts out fear. I think, again, we've had it exactly upside down and inside out. We've thought if, if we can wholeheartedly pursue a relationship with God, then we will be able eventually to find a way to live with each other. But the point of 1 John 4 is that the only way you will have the kind of confidence with God that drives out fear is if you live with one another long enough for God's love to be perfected in you. Only as we live together over time, through seasons, through difficulties, through triumphs and failures, only as we live together like that long enough can God's love be perfected in us strongly enough for that love to drive out fear. I learned not to fear God by loving you and letting you love me. Because the more I realize that your life and my life are bound up together, the more I realize that God will not cut himself off from me because I'm bound to you. This, this is the key. The moment I realize that your salvation matters more than mine, I can never fear God again. The moment I realize my life is about your salvation more than it's about mine, I have no need to fear God. Because what matters is not what happens to me. What matters is what happens to you. And any spirituality that creates anxiety in me about my relationship to God is a spirituality that doesn't understand the need for brotherly and sisterly love. Because at the end of the day, I'm called to you first and foremost. 
God has called me into his family because he is radically in love with you. And I am his care to you. Now that may be disappointing. But that's what you get. And you are his care to me. If you find yourself afraid of God, it's because you haven't lived deeply enough into life with your brothers and sisters. If you find yourself afraid that God might cut you off, it's because you're still thinking first and foremost about your relationship to God instead of hers and his relationship to God. But if you can turn that upside down and inside out, if you can realize that your prayers are first for them, your fasting is first for them, your study is first for them, your giving is first for them, then you realize you have no need to fear God. Because what's happening in you is the life of God is taking shape. Because who is Christ if not the one who gives up his own life for the sake of others? That's who Christ is. Christ is the one who takes no thought for himself, thinks only for us, and therefore reveals the nature of God. The most faithful believer then is the believer who's never thinking about her own salvation. Never trying to manage his own relationship with God. It's about loving those around me, those nearest to me, and those furthest away. So, how do we do that? How do we do that? There are two stories I want to draw attention to. Both of them are from Acts. One of them is in the lectionary reading for the day, Acts chapter 8. So let's turn there. The story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts eight twenty six. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is, Luke tells us, a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of, the, of Candice, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go over to his chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. Now this, this first story, I think, models for us what it looks like to live in community over time through whatever comes to face us. Because sometimes we're called to be like Philip, and sometimes we're called to be like the eunuch. And there's no way we will love one another until God's love is perfected in us and drives out the fear of judgment, unless we live like Philip and the eunuch did. I want you to notice first what Philip does. He hears from God that he has a commission, but God doesn't tell him what it is. Now, one of the things that's annoying about our God is that he always gives you less information than you need. He never reveals his will fully. He always gives it, gives it to you a, a bit at a time, a line at a time. And so he says to Philip, get up and go into the wilderness, the road that leads to the wilderness. And Philip goes. 
And I think this is a model for us of how God leads most of us. He doesn't say, I have this destiny for you, and here's how I'm going to lead you into it, and here's how you're going to fulfill it. He simply says, do this. Do this. And often that this leads us right into the wilderness. But Philip went. And there Philip encounters this eunuch who is reading Isaiah. And Philip then hears the Lord say, go to the chariot, go up to this man. And so Philip again complies. He's just living moment to moment, living instinct to instinct. Go into the wilderness, he goes, go up to the chariot, he goes up to the chariot, and he hears the man reading Isaiah, and then he just asks the question, do you understand what you're reading? What's striking is this juxtaposition between what the man is reading and what Philip is to do. What he's reading is the passage in Isaiah where it says Jesus is like a sheep who opens not his mouth. And then the first thing Luke tells us is that Philip opened his mouth and said, this is Jesus. Because here's the thing about our God. He remains silent so we can speak for him. I wish he didn't. I wish he didn't because I would rather hear him speak than you. You would rather hear him speak than me. But at the heart of his work in our life is to force us to need each other. So when we want him to speak, he remains silent. He will not open his mouth so that Philip has to open his mouth. Because what God wants is not just a relationship with Philip and a relationship with the eunuch, but for Philip and the eunuch to be brothers together. So God opens not his mouth so someone else can speak up. This is the hard truth. To live in community is to live with a God who's silent because he's making room for people to speak to us. So many of us are praying for God to speak and God is not going to speak except through the mouth of those men and women around us, those boys and girls around us that he means to send to us for our good. We're listening for a voice from heaven when there are voices from earth all around us we're not listening to. We're praying for something to happen that isn't going to happen. He opens not his mouth so that Philip has to open his mouth. But when Philip opens his mouth, all Philip talks about is Jesus. Philip doesn't talk about Philip. Philip talks about Jesus. This this is the heart of the life that's turned over to God. To learn to talk to one another in such a way that what we say to one another when we speak is about the Jesus who's silent so that we have to speak. This, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his lovely book, Life Together, says that At the heart of our ministry is the ministry of holding our tongue when it's time to be silent and speaking the gospel when it's time to be heard. This is at the heart of what it means to live in community. Knowing when to keep your mouth shut and your fingers still and when to speak and when to type. Knowing when the moment has come for you to say nothing and when the moment has come for you to say, this is Jesus. And, and getting that out of rhythm is incredibly destructive. Speaking when you should be silent, no matter what you're saying, if you speak when you should be silent, even the truth can be destructive. This is, this is the ministry of Satan, to speak the truth when it shouldn't be spoken. And if I speak the truth to you when it shouldn't be spoken, I'm just destroying you. I'm like Peter cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant. I'm making it so you can't hear the truth, even though I'm speaking the truth. But if I don't speak when it's time to speak, then I leave you in condemnation. I leave you in confusion. I leave you in brokenness. So 
being a person led by the Spirit is knowing when to stay silent and when to speak. What's striking about Philip is that he gets it right. He gets it right. He comes alongside this eunuch, and at the right time, he says the right thing. This is Jesus. But I'm even more impressed with the eunuch. As impressive as Philip is, the eunuch is really the hero of this story. First, notice he's an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a Gentile who's a eunuch. And where has he been? To Jerusalem to worship. Now, this is astonishing because Israel's law strictly forbids either Gentiles or eunuchs coming into the house of God. And here's a man who's both a Gentile and a eunuch who just shows up anyway. Think about what that takes. Think about the guts it takes to be a Gentile eunuch and show up in Jerusalem to worship. Here's someone who is a double outsider. Someone who has broken the, the, the boundaries in two different ways and yet he shows up. He shows up and God doesn't show up for him. Here's another really disappointing, annoying thing about our God. He never meets you where you think he'll meet you. So this man comes from Ethiopia as a Gentile, as a eunuch, comes to Jerusalem looking for something. But it didn't happen there. Philip didn't meet him there. Jesus didn't meet him there. And now he's on his way home, but he's still reading Isaiah, a passage he doesn't understand. And this is what roughly 97% of the Christian life is. It's going to find God and not finding him, going home and reading texts you don't understand, and then encountering the people God sends to you. And the only thing that will keep you in this life is being stubborn enough to keep reading texts you don't understand and showing up at places where God doesn't speak. That's the only thing that will keep you in this life, is showing up where God doesn't speak when you think he's going to speak and reading texts you don't understand. And this eunuch is just stubborn enough to keep doing it and humble enough to accept teaching when it comes. Because as hard as it is to know when to keep your mouth shut and when to open it, it's even harder to know when to listen. And this eunuch knows this is my moment to listen. How can I understand if someone isn't there to guide me? Show me! And he shows him. This is, what, this is the secret to abiding in community long-term. Can you listen to people or not? Can anybody teach you anything? Can you hear someone else say, this is what the Lord wants, and accept it? Are you stubborn enough to keep showing up time after time? This reminds me of the story of Thomas. I love this about the story of Thomas. Remember, Jesus appears to the disciples, and Thomas isn't there. But the very next week, Thomas shows up anyway. Because again, for most of us, maybe not for all of you, but for most of us, the Christian life is hearing about other people talk about how amazing God is in their life, but he isn't like that for me. And showing up anyway. Showing up at church on Sunday morning, in spite of the fact that God doesn't speak to you 24-7 like he seems to speak to everybody else. I mean, some people, God tells them what clothes to wear, what car to buy, what job to take, what person to marry. God speaks to them every night in every dream, right? Tells them when not to eat, what to eat, when they eat. And I'm like, I don't know, God maybe has never spoken to me in my life. I'm not sure. But I show up. 
Not because I'm waiting on that to happen. Because I know if I needed that, God would be faithful to give me that. I'm showing up because it's about you and me. And about what he's doing in between us and among us. And so keep showing up. Those of you who feel like everybody else has this deep, astonishing relationship with God that you don't have, that doesn't matter. Who cares if they prophesy? Who cares if their faith moves mountains? What matters is the way we love one another. So keep showing up. What God cares about is that you are there when I need you. Not that you see deep mysteries. Not that you understand the book of Revelation and how it relates to the book of Daniel. That doesn't matter. No matter how impressive your end time chart is, that doesn't matter. What matters is that when I need someone to sit with me in the hospital, you show up and put your body there. That when I lose someone, you're there bringing food to my house so that I don't have to cook while I'm grieving. That you show up on Sunday morning so other people can see you here, even though your week has been absolutely annihilatingly bad. That's what the Christian life is about. It's about putting your body in a place of faithfulness over and over and over again for the sake of other people. It's being Thomas. It's being the Ethiopian eunuch. Be stubborn enough to show up even though you're disappointed. So one more story. Oh, no, I'm moving too fast. Slow down. The Ethiopian eunuch, this is astonishing, because he's reading Isaiah, but he's not yet come to this passage. Isaiah 56, listen to this. I know we're reading a lot of scripture, but surely you can't be offended at that. (laughs) If you are, just endure me, that's love of God working in you. (laughs) Isaiah 56, verse 3. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And what I love about this is that this Ethiopian eunuch is almost to this text. He's just a few chapters away from coming on these words, eunuch and Gentile. I know in Deuteronomy you're forbidden, but I'm saying to you, don't say you're a dry tree. In my house, I will give you a name better than sons and daughters. I wish those of you who are eunuchs could hear this. That God delights in you more than in sons and daughters. Those of you who feel like your life has meant nothing for God, Rejoice. Because this is not about prophecy and faith that moves mountains and insight into ministry and mysteries. This is about people who show up even when they're dead. Even when they pray, they hear nothing. When they read scripture, they understand nothing. When they give, they get no blessing in return. And yet they show up. Those are the people whom God is pleased with. Because it's easy 
now it's getting really quiet in here. But it's, it's, it's easy to be a person of prayer when what's coming from it is the power of wisdom and revelation. Because then you can use that power and revelation over other people to promote yourself. It's easy to be a person of prayer when you see miracles happen. It's e because that empowers you. That gives you status. That gives you standing in the community. This is why Simon the sorcerer says to Peter, give me the gift you have because I know what I can do with that gift. But do you know what it takes to be a person of prayer when your prayers are never answered? Do you know what it takes to be a person of study when your study never yields insight? Those are the people God is pleased with. Those people who just keep stubbornly showing up, even though God never speaks to them, miracles never happen, their faith doesn't not only move mountains, mountains fall on them whenever they try to have faith, and yet they keep showing up. Because those are the people who make communities. Because the people who are in it because of what it means for them, they never stay in community. They're always moving from community to community because if you don't see them for what they are, they're offended. If you don't celebrate them for the gifts they have, they move on to another community where they'll be celebrated. But if this is not about me being celebrated, but about me serving you, then whether God speaks to me or not, whether Scripture opens itself to me or not, whether miracles happen or not, I'm going to show up for you. That will make community. That will make community. And the difference 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now between this community being a bunch of individuals who were pursuing a relationship with God or being a community that lasts across generations is how many of those people we have. Not how many prophets, not how many teachers, not how many miracle workers, but how many stubborn people who, even though they're eunuchs, keep showing up. I got one more story and then I'm done. And this one will be short. Er, short er. <laughs> And this is, this is difficult, so you've you got you to hear me. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I kept thinking about this story this week, thinking about the, the threat of cutting us off and the promise of having no fear of judgment. You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm not going to read it to you. It's a man and a woman in the early church who... They see everyone else selling their property and giving the money to the, to the apostles and to the community, and they devise a scheme. And the scheme is they're going to sell a piece of property, lie about the amount they received, and say they gave all, even though they're keeping a sum to themselves. And so Ananias comes first. He gives the gift to Peter and the apostles and the community and dies. Because Peter says, you've conspired in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then Sapphira comes a few hours later, and the same scene happens again. She lies. She falls dead. In both cases, what's happening is the attempt to leave the community with an impression about their spirituality that isn't true. Now, if what I've been saying today is true, that what God cares about most is the way we live with each other, what do you think he hates the most? People who try to present themselves as something they're not in community. God knows what they gave. God knows what they sold the land for. It's not that this is an offense to God that they lied. It's that God knows what this lie means in a community. And there is nothing worse than people who pretend to be holier than they are. There's nothing worse in terms of what happens to a community because imagine what happens in a community where everybody feels the pressure to present themselves as having a better relationship with God than they do, as walking in holiness more than they do. That's not community anymore. 
It's not, it's not the kind of community he calls us to. And one of the reasons I think that Ananias and Sapphira drop dead here is because God is not going to tolerate people living with that kind of pretension. He can't tolerate it. Because what happens to me when you present yourself as something other than you are is that I can't be myself with you. And so either I have to hide or I have to falsely present myself. So at the heart of living in community is the refusal to do this. It's the refusal. John Wesley, when he was at Oxford, he developed this series of questions that he would ask himself every day. And one of them, the one that stings me most deeply, is this. Have I let anyone think anything about me today that is in any way untrue? Have I let anyone think anything about me today that is in any way untrue? That's the kind of care you have to have to live in community. To not let those lies remain. And yet, here's a case where a man and a woman drop dead. So how am I supposed to have no fear of judgment? Because just like you, I have done what they did. There have been many times in my life where I've let people think things about me that weren't true because I liked the way they were thinking about me. You've done it too. Don't act like you haven't. Over and over and over again in our lives, we, we present ourselves in ways where we want people to misread us. Because we don't trust that if they could see us for who we are, they would love us. We don't believe that in our marriages. We don't believe that in our families. We sure don't believe that in our churches. But here's, here's the wisdom. The moment I can be myself with you, the moment I do not fear your judgment, I no longer fear his. The moment I'm willing to say, this is who I am, and let you see that, I can let him see that. This is what John says. If they say they love their brothers and sisters, but do not, then they cannot love God. Because if I can't be vulnerable with you, I can't be vulnerable with him. If I can't let you see me with my armor off and see that I'm a leper, I'll never let him heal me of that leprosy. I'll just keep the armor on and you'll never see. And that's what matters. But this, this is what I'm leaving you with. But when Ananias and Sapphira fall dead, both times we're told, and great fear came on the community. And great fear came on the community. Now, obviously, they had good reason to be afraid. A man and a woman just died. And yet the text says perfect love drives out fear. And what I'm left with is this haunting question. What if Peter and the other apostles had responded differently to these deaths than they did? What if they had responded like Abraham had responded when he saw Sodom and Gomorrah? What if they responded like Moses responded when God said he was going to destroy Israel and start over with us? And this, this is what I want to leave you with. The real test is what happens when people you know deserve the judgment of God are judged. What happens in your heart when people that you know are guilty receive what they have coming? There's an old play, a French playwright did, about the judgment of God, the last judgment. And the way the judgment works in this play is that each one of us is called to stand to the side in this hidden room and observe our enemies being judged. And the judgment is this. When you see your enemy being forgiven when you don't want them to be forgiven, what happens in your heart? 
is the judgment of you. Because if you see God having mercy on those who do not deserve mercy, and you rejoice in it, you have the heart of Christ. But if you see God having mercy on those who do not deserve mercy, and you resent it, the love of God is not in you. This is the heart of community. Not how do I live with those I love and respect, but what happens when people in the community that I know are destructive, that I know are lying, that I know are Ananias and Sapphira, when they're cut off, what do I do? How do I respond? And if I see you in your sin, in your foolishness, in your stubbornness, resisting God, and my heart breaks for you, then there's hope for me. If you see me drifting away from God, losing my rhythm with the Spirit, losing my love for my neighbor, and your heart breaks for me, there's hope for you. But the moment I take joy in anybody else being cut off, I've lost touch with a God whose ways are not our ways. So this is my prayer for sanctuary. That you will love one another so deeply that nothing will animate your life like care for those you like the least. That you show up at sanctuary, not because you love Pastor Mark, not because you love Bishop Ed, not because you love Pastor Janice, but because of those people you don't like. Because if you can become that kind of person, you don't show up because you love the music, you don't show up because you love the kids' programs, you don't show up because you love the preaching. Lord knows you didn't this morning do that. But you show up because there's somebody who just gets in your craw and you can't deal with them. And you realize that's the call of God to you. Stay in this community until that resentment turns to compassion. Until that resentment turns to adoration and admiration. If you do that, God's love will be perfected in you. And without even realizing it, you'll wake up one day and realize you have no fear. Let me pray for you. Pastor Mark, you come.